This podcast is brought to you by Quick Left, an award-winning custom software consultancy that crafts outstanding web and mobile applications. Find more great content like this podcast at quickleft.com. Quick Left's Chief Product Officer, Joe Stump, talks about the business of coding in this series of podcasts. Twice monthly, we will feature a new podcast with different industry experts that explore not only the challenges that face the technical side of business, but the business side of technology. Each all-star guest shares their own experience on the technical and non-technical aspects of running a company and imparts tips, tools, and advice for the programmer and business person. Thank you again for joining us for another episode of The Business of Coding. I'm joined uh, this week by Michael Lopp, otherwise known as Rands on the interwebs. Uh, Michael, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be here again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, for those of uh, you listening, uh, uh, Michael and I actually recorded this episode uh, record in air quotes. I forgot to hit record, so we had a very lovely hour-long chat. Uh, and this is uh, take two. Uh, so, Michael, um, what have you, you? You most recently were at Palantir, but there's there's big news today. What's what's the big news in uh, on your career front today? Well, as of like eight minutes ago, um, on the day that we recorded this, uh, there's uh, news going out that I'm going to go over to Pinterest and be. Uh, running their engineering team up there in San Francisco. So it's, it is big news, and it's happening right now. It, <laughs> although I think this is going to happen a couple of weeks later, right? Uh, yes, it'll, I'm not sure how many weeks behind uh, we are in real, t- in real time, but yeah, it'll be, it'll be old news by then. You'll be uh, you know, very comfortable in your new position <laughs> by the time you, uh, this hits the, hits the airwaves. Right. Um, you know, we, one of the things that, that I always find uh, – interesting about company startup growth in particular is uh, eventually, you know, as much as startups like to continue viewing themselves as this like manager free, uh, no process land, um, that actually becomes a myth, I feel, right around 15 or 20 employees. Yeah. Uh, And Pinterest is now at uh, we were talking before we started recording, 160 engineers, you said, right? Yeah, it's about 50% of, I haven't started yet, so I'm still learning all about it, but it's about 50% of the team is what I understand is engineering. What, that that's uh, that's crazy, 320 people. Uh, Pinterest is obviously still growing like a weed. Um, one of the questions I have is like, what are the, the first questions, like if you're a manager coming into a pre-existing engineering culture organization, uh, what are, you know, what are the first kind of things you look for uh, when you when you first get in there on day one as, you know, a new managing uh, leader in the engineering org? Well, I've been thinking about this a lot, obviously. It's, I mean, the, the thing that I think you're looking for right out of the gate is what is the culture, right? I mean, there's a set of values or principles they have, and then there's so how they're living against those values and principles. And like, what is the culture? And it, it's, it, I mean, I, I write a lot about engineering and engineering leadership and the engineering mindset, but the thing that's always unique about a group of engineers is like, what's the culture? Which sounds like fuzzy, hand-wavy sort of answer, but it's really, you got to go figure out what are the things that they value? What are the things, how are they making decisions? What are the things that they put before other things, right? So how do you figure that out, right? And it's this huge, hard task of just talking to a, a, a lot of people so you can sort of triangulate and you know figure it out there's the things that they're saying that are obvious and then there's the things that they're just living because 
someone set an example two years ago or something like that, right? That they're, it's just kind of part of who they are. So that's kind of job number one. It's really easy. It's really hard and it's really easy. It's talk to everyone, right? So, and figure out what the, what, what the culture is. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, that, that definitely always is priority number one for me. The other, the other thing that I always feel, uh, is important is, to map what I call the real org chart. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, Lucas from Puppet is really big on this. He's, he's, I wouldn't say he's anti no managers, but he definitely doesn't buy into it. And his, his thesis is that it really doesn't matter how you structure people. There's always social capital being accrued and exchanging right. hands, right, which right. is, which is an implied social, you know, stratified organization. Right. Um, when you look at the the organization and the quote unquote uh, real org chart, um, and in an engineering an existing engineering organization that you've joined, what are uh, what are some things and some characteristics that you see uh, that you might see that would would be a green flag, like ooh that's 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 a good sign that that I made the right choice joining this team right, uh, right. versus red flags. Yeah, um, I think. That's a really good question. Wow, these are great questions. I should be writing this down. Um, <laughs> I think uh, this is straight out of the top of my head. I think the green flags are, um, uh, first off, you know, is do they have a sense of how is it working? What's the we're talking about engineers here? So, do they believe that they're being efficient, right? And and I don't mean like number code getting done, designs being completed, features being shipped. It's like the whole process is like is there is there a system to support me being efficient, right? And it's not that's not like project managers running around dotting all the i's and crossing the t's, but like the comms piece, uh, the own res- roles and responsibilities piece. The do I have clarity about what I'm doing? Do I have clarity about what else everyone else is doing? Can I easily figure out what other people are doing? So it's like that. There's this efficiency quotient somewhere that is very hard to measure, but is real in terms of like, do, do, is that working? Another thing that just pops to mind is. Yes, I'm, I've been writing about leadership and management for a long time. It, does that exist? How are they viewed, right? Because like the, the knee-jerk response to managers are like, who are these jerks and what are they doing? And wh- why do they have all this power that I don't quite understand how they got and I'm still beholden to them? It's like, how, what is the, sort of the temperature check on, on leadership, right? That's, that could be both a green flag or, and a red flag as well. Um, but the other thing is that I like to see in a team is like, Great. So there's the people leadership, let's say, but is also is there a technical leadership? Has a technical leadership organism network developed of people that aren't people leaders, you know, formerly people leaders, but also are the technical visionaries for the team, you know, and they are respected. And it's probably this, it's like, the, it's not on the org chart necessarily. Maybe it should be of like the folks that are the, the, the engineers that are the technical folks that are deeply technical and respected and looked up to. And that can be the leads too. But, you know, I'd like to, there, there, there tends to be two quote unquote promotion tracks there needs to be two, which is the people that are focusing on that lead side and on the technical leadership side because they don't want to do all the people stuff and they maybe they don't want to go to the meetings and do some of the process stuff. And they're more valuable to us when they're, they're, they're deeply – they're incentivized to be deeply technical and they're exemplars to other folks who want to head in that direction. So um, that's some of the green flag. Red flags um, Red flags are all the usual things that we don't like, like politics, the bad version of politics. Um, 
comms issues. You know, you're talking to two people about the same thing and getting different answers. It's like, yeah, we're working on performance. And the other person's like, oh, we're working on, you know, blah, blah, blah. That's like when, when it's in a small team, right? You know, uh, you know, it's not that 160 is incredibly small, but like the shared state being, this goes back to the efficiency thing, the shared state being consistent, um, is a good sign that things are, are, are getting done and that people are, you know, content and kind of can see the vision when it's, when it's, at, when you're that small, and if the state, if the, if, if I'm if I'm smelling that the, the the information or the distribution of information is off, that's a pretty big red flag to me, and like an immediate place to start, like you know, deep diving and figuring out, okay, what can we do to improve comms here? Um, this 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 is really interesting because you you you've said a couple of words that I always say around kind of like, you know, really when it comes to the entire tech organization. Yeah. The rest of the organization really only wants a couple things. One is consistency, and the other one is clarity. Like, what are you working on? And and cons- like a consistent, like just consistency right. in general. Like, I remember um, <clears throat> when I first met uh, the VP of Engineering at Urban Airship, he uh, managed everything. Um, he managed other people's expectations via cycle time. So. Right. The business would come to him and they'd be like, hey, I want to do this thing. When can it be on the website and I can sell it to customers? And right. he'd be like, 60 days. Everything takes 60 days. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he's like, and, and it was interesting because the business was actually able to, because he had such a high confidence that it, right. you know, 60 days, like, yes, right. sure, some of it will come out in four and some right. of it might take 65 or 70, but the consistency, you know, his, his confidence level is very high in that number. Right. Um, <laughs> And I think this is something around uh, communication that is often a breakdown between business and developers where they yeah. feel that the developers are always asking, you know, the business is asking, when is this going to be done? And the developers have a very definite, a very different definition of done than what right. the business does. Yeah. Um, and I'm wondering if you have any kind of tips or tricks or, or, you know, things that you've seen work that can really get the, that consistency, uh, yeah across both business and and develop and the development organization. Yeah, two initial thoughts on this. Number one is I've found that there's a set of people that are it can exist and maybe they're in one group or the other, but they exist right on the fence between the two teams and they speak both languages extremely well, right? And that's their, you know, it at Apple uh, engineering program project managers, I now forget, it's been years, but they're these folks that are this connective tissue piece and they can go and they can, because it's like communication, by the way, is really hard, especially when you're talking about deep domain people that care a lot about what they're doing. But like little words that we, you and I going high bandwidth on engineering stuff, we just say blah, 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 and people look at us like we're crazy people, right? And that's, that's take that, put that in or into a, or a company where there's lots of people with lots of things that are super busy. You've got to have those intermediaries, those connective tissue people that translate, which leads to point number two, which is uh, there's an education piece. You don't need your business people to like be deeply be technical, right? Because that's why you have engineers. But you, they do, there needs to be, and maybe it's these intermediaries, there needs to be an education of like, hey, you know, uh, this is why this is hard. Understand that this is, a th- and it, it, it's, and it goes both ways. You know, the business do explain why it needs to explain why this thing that they're asking for is important, what the impact is, what the rationale is for asking for this thing. But there's that education piece that needs to happen. I think, again, another, another warning flag I see when I come in and I'm sniffing around a new organization is like, 
we as humans at a distance tend to simplify. We say marketing, oh, it's storytelling. Graphic design, oh, it's the pictures on the shirts. And it's like, that it's, it's, it's hilariously wrong, right? It's, it's an art and there's, there's deep knowledge to be a great marketer or a great graphic designer and years of experience, et cetera, et cetera. But we tend to simplify. And if, and if you're coming into a team and people are all like, oh, the engineers just need to do that thing and it's, you know, I, I'm, it's just code, right? You know, it's just Java. But if they, if they don't have an understanding, again, not deep understanding, but at least a cursory, you know, building block understanding, uh, that's something I think, I think that's something that you need to, you need to educate. You need to educate on both sides in both directions. Yeah, that's, that's something that um, I did uh, once a quarter at, at Dig is I, I would have a brown bag lunch and right. bring everybody, all the business people in. And I would say, look, this, this is how Dig works at a, you know, it's a very high level technical drawing and right. I will explain what memcache is because they hear those things in all the meetings, right? Like, like this is one thing that consistently frustrates me about working with developers uh, is that they use the information disparity to their advantage where they're like, well, I know that you don't know what memcache means. So I'm going to say something that sounds highly technical because in reality, I just don't want to do that feature. Yeah, exactly. Um, Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) exactly. There's also, Sorry, there's there's these douchebag business types, and I have lots of business friends. I can, but I speak in archetypes. I apologize. Um, the um, who get who define their set themselves by knowing a couple of the words and throwing it down to kind of make it sound like they know what they're talking about without any deep knowledge, and they're really good at throwing the words and sounding like it's like it's there, but it, they don't have any deep they don't have any deep knowledge. These people need to like have the education piece, right? They need to have, again, not deep, but they need to have some understanding. And I think it's an ongoing educational thing. What are, what are some ways that you found that you can kind of, uh, kind of implicitly and, and through culture kind of get, uh, this, this kind of domain, this domain knowledge going both ways? I, I mean, I think it's not that hard. I think it's just, you know, we're in a, any company we're like the world is collapsing around there's people going to eat our lunch there's like all these things that are like driving us forward and what you just talked about joe in terms of this like brown bag of like architectural overview let's just like let's just talk about like your day it's like there's threats and there's fires and all these things and an investment a a sort of intangible investment in a brown bag about the technical architecture of dig or pinterest or whatever it just immediately falls down to a p2 right and we don't because we have this fire that's going on and like oh my goodness and my my point is not just about you know your brown bag but this investment in sort of the connective tissue the communication of the team just because it doesn't hurt right now just because it's not the world is not on fire regarding comms does not mean that it's instantly a p2 task it's not a p1 task it's like you have to choose some percent of your time in a growing company to do these things these intangible things that are super important and i'm sorry i'm so sorry i can't point to whoever's yelling at me and say like i'm going to go do this meeting that seems really not important to you but it's it's important to the future of my team or my product or my company right it's choosing to invest that's like number 1 is like saying hey i'm going to do this thing and i get it's not a fire drill but i trust me when i say long term investment yeah this is something that that i've found kind of over and over is that this isn't something um you know, this, this notion of kind of 
sharing knowledge across the organization, um, aligning you know entire parts around uh, certain strategic goals, right? Um, particularly disparate parts, right? Like it, yeah. it can be very difficult to come up with a comm strategy that says. Hey, Miss Developer and Mr. Salesperson and Miss Marketing Person, uh, right. you know, you. I know that it feels like you are working on very different things, but in right. fact, you're all aligned around you know this one particular goal. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm interested in your thoughts on kind of you know uh, how either disruptive or not disruptive. One of the things I've been personally enamored with is uh, centering cross-functional teams around KPIs. Yeah, um, measurable things, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I like measurable things for, I like cross-functional teams for a number of reasons. One, it increases uh, that kind of cross-functional empathy. Like, yeah. oh, uh, the salesperson is really struggling with this tool that we built. Like, I could, we could make more sales if I just, like, you right. know, push them, push them nice code or something. Or uh, it also helps around... I really like it when it comes to kind of performance reviews. Yeah. You know, people can be like, well, how, how'd we do this quarter? It's like, well, the KPI went bad. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, and we can talk about why that is or it went really well. Um, do you have experience kind of uh, with, with cross-functional teams, you know, centering, you know, cross-pollinating developers around the organizations? Like I feel it's still very common that everybody is in basically functional units. Yeah, it's um I'm going to I'm going to riff on your question a little bit on that cross-functional concept because I think that um I think that what we're talking it depends on the mature sorry maybe the size and maturity of the organization. I wrestle with this. I like these idea of these teams where everyone does a little bit of everything, but there's some inflection point where you want to specialize. And that specialization thing is a big tax because you're going to have these people that are just front-end devs or da-da-da, whatever it is. And maybe that's when those connective tissue people start showing up. But, uh, you know, and, and I like the idea of cross-functional and people, again, being doing a little bit, people doing a little bit of everything. But uh, at some point, you want people to be able to go deep. You're going to get more value out of that. So I don't know when that point is, and I know I'm not answering your question, <laughs> but it's... Um, it, it's something when when do we when does that when do you actually go and do that and let specialists kind of arrive and and be specialists i don't know do, what do you what do you think about that it's i think that um you know uh, the way that that we personally work at quick left is it's really this is going to sound really bizarre probably to a lot of people listening but um we actually start at the financial model yeah and the financial model has certain assumptions and i've seen financial models put together in two different ways one way is we want to go from x revenue or x profit to y revenue or y profit right right and i don't think that's a very good idea because you're basically empowering teams to just go after revenue come hell or high water and yeah. the way that we do it is more like we know that if we increase this kpi from x to y it will have a net positive effect like for instance right. we know how our funnel works on consulting services we know how our funnel works on sprintly and other products that we release right. yeah. and once we know how our financials will behave based on right. driving those kpis we then assign owners right to those kpis totally. and totally. then we and then we ask them what resources do you need to get churn from x to y or to get inbound leads from you know y to z Right. Um, and, uh, and, and give them the resources around that. And we, I, so I think when it comes to specialization, 
Yeah. Personally, we recently hired somebody uh, in product marketing that is a specialist when it comes to uh, content marketing and uh, driving natural inbound traffic. Like he's, right, he's right. very, very good at that. And we, we got to the point where we realized that we needed someone to specialize on that when those KPIs were going in the wrong direction. Right. And we didn't have anybody internally that was raising their hand saying, yeah. dude, I got this. Yeah. Uh, and so that was a, a really like the, what I really like about running things this way is it provides pretty brutal clarity about yeah. what's going wrong and when. Yeah. Um, I think the the only thing that I haven't really figured out is, you know, and I, I've seen this in other organizations. I haven't seen this yet in at quick left, but in other organizations where people stand up and are like, uh, I got this. And then they really don't because <laughs> they aren't the specialist. But I, f- I found that that working that way uh, works really well. Um, and I think, I think I'm coming out of my my Palantir background, where it's it's obviously a, a data company. Um, it's uh, we just always were framing things in terms of what's the model, and a model is you know a flow chart with the data moving around. How are we going to measure this, and how are we going to pull out? You use the word KPIs. We're thinking in terms of outcomes, right? But it's like when you, we go back to what I first said, this idea of efficiency that w- what you're talking about is being able to like you can't go crazy because you're dealing with humans and there's lots of weird intangible things around humans. But when you get to that world where you have a model, you explain how it, we're measuring how, what success looks like, what we're losing. This is very satisfying from the efficiency minded folks because they can look and as best you can, you can't get crazy about this because people get into over measure mode and that drives me nuts because there's, there's still this art to this, right? There's a still like, we're going to do this thing even though the numbers don't necessarily trust me on this. Sometimes you want to do that intuition thing, but a lot of it, Again, it's just this modeling uh, concept that is the way that I describe it, not that you're describing it. I think engineers just love. And again, it, it, it gets a lot – for me, it gets a lot of debates about why we're doing things, not about like, oh, you know, Frank is this great guy and he's in marketing and he's just – he's so compelling and I really like him. That's great that we like him. But like why is this – what is this thing that he's asking us to do that's going to be hard and expensive? Tell me what the ROI is. Tell me some way to measure that. It's not always that way, but I'd like it. It feels it just, it's a great way to I think work around engineering teams and to run a business. By the way, yes, yes. <laughs> FYI, yeah, I, 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 I definitely agree with that. Um, <clears throat> when it comes to kind of the, you know we've touched on kind of these efficiency coefficients and things like that. Right. Um, one of the things that that I feel you know I I talk I talk with and and tend to mentor a lot of engineers that are starting down the whole I'm going to become a manager path right right and one of the things that they always struggle with is like I I just want to go back to coding because people don't make sense and code does yeah um what are what are some ways you know that that those new managers can look for uh possibly leveraging their code to increase efficiencies for their team because there's I have some some, of course, some opinions. I always have opinions. Uh, <laughs> but um, do you think that there are ways that a manager can continue to code and still add value to his team? And if so, what are some of those ways that you've seen uh, former coders that are now managers do that? I um, I got asked this yesterday. I had a sort of a welcome thing at Pinterest, and someone asked me this question. And I've and the first question is, uh, should and you didn't ask this, but I'm just going to twist a little bit. Should managers keep coding? And let's call them leaders, not managers. This is my branding effort that I'm going to do for a little while. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
but should be leads be coding? And I've gone back and forth on it because I, I'm, I obviously I have a superpower uh, allegedly on the people side, but I think it's really super important. Number one, to keep coding, to always have that thing that you're doing. It means that the team size means that, again, you're deliberately choosing to invest part of your time in the code. But I think it keeps you grounded in a way. And again, maybe at some point you turn into a VP or director or something like that, and that doesn't happen. But even then, I think you still want to spend some time doing this because, I don't know, it's like the moment you stop, I think it doesn't immediately happen. It's not like I'm coding every day or anything. But I think you lose touch with some of the reality. And or you lose the truth is a little more distance, and also engineers can start lying to you, and that's bad. But um, (laughs) not that engineers lie, you know what I'm saying. Um, So I think that's it's. I think that's. I think that's really important. And by the way, there's another thing here, which is I think it keeps the org flatter when like the leadership team on the engineering side is still coding, is because they're they know what it's like, right? They remember, and like I can still I don't code all the time, but I can still like I know what it's like to like be lost in that algorithm and it's like what the hell is going on here and I've been here for an hour and I haven't made any progress and da 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 right that's I think that's really super important is that piece um in terms of using their code as a lead I I would be interested in what your opinion is I feel like you have something to say here (laughs) yeah I have I have I have two things that that I will no matter where or when or how I'm I'm employed I'll probably continue to do as a manager right uh one is writing unit tests like right, right. one code can always use another test always always right. always and two yeah. you have to have a functioning development environment to write tests yeah absolutely you, you have to have fairly sophisticated knowledge of like how to code in order to test correctly yeah um so i always feel you can write another test uh the other thing that um i spend quite a bit of time doing is uh automation and tooling for my team so right right you, you know, I'll have one developer complain in a stand-up or a one-on-one about, you know, I had this happen uh, about a year ago. I noticed that um, it was a huge pain in the ass to, like, fetch a new database, a uh, dump of the database, and load it locally into your local dev environment. Right. So I spent a few hours, and it made it, like, you know, two simple commands that you can do without having to thinking, and it loads the database dump. Yeah. Uh, and, I, you know, I don't know how many hours of developer time I've saved since implementing that, but right. a, a lot. So yeah. those, I, I think the, the, the rules that I follow around kind of coding, and, and the key here is like managers should always code just to code, like you said, keeping that empathy at a high level, understanding right. where the tool sets are going, understanding, uh, you know, what the opportunities of new technology are. Like that's obviously very important to you as a CTO yeah. or a VP of engineering. Absolutely. Um, but the rules that I have for like, I'm going to code something for my company that I think will add value are, uh, can't be a feature of any kind. Right. Uh, can't be in the critical path at yes. all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and shouldn't be a blocking task. So, so those are kind of the rules that I follow. Um, yeah. Although I do break them on the feature, new feature side, but I do have a rule around that, which is it can't be anything that's currently on the roadmap. Yeah. Um, so I'm working on something right now at Sprintly that I'm sure a couple of our engineers are like, why the hell are you working on that? And the answer is really no better than, I can do what I want in my own time. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> um, as far as, you know, looking back now, you, you spent a lot of time uh, managing uh, and, and working in technology and leading, sorry, leading, 
I, I disagree. I think there's a distinct difference between a manager and a leader, by the way. It, there really is, and it's bad. <laughs> <laughs> we should have this debate. I want to have this debate with you. Maybe over a beer, but yes, go ahead. <laughs> uh, what, I, what I'm curious is, is what, what are some of the things that, that you think, um, you know, that really have that surprised you when you moved into becoming a, a leader <laughs> of technology full time, like you know, when you when you first made that transition, yeah. what what are some of the lessons that uh, leaders that are coming up through the ranks uh, <clears throat> can hopefully glean from from uh, you uh, blazing the trail? Thank you for uh, indulging me on the leader thing. It's really. You know, it's. I'm actually working on this right now. I'm, I'm off to Sweden in a couple of weeks. I'm doing this talk called The Intangible. And it has to do with what is the most common thing that a new leader, engineering leader says. And they all say this. She says it. He says it. They all say it. And they're all baffled by it. And my answer has always been very unsatisfying. They say, I don't know what I do all day. They say, I don't know what I do all day. Right. Um, I used to be coding and I used to be writing unit tests and closing bugs and it was all very measurable and all very satisfying. But now I don't do what I do all day. So the question is, you know, <laughs> what are they doing all day? Well, we all we know the, uh, the obvious things. They're going to meetings. They're like talking to people. They're dealing with people's stuff. They're talking to HR about random stuff, whatever. But there's this there's this thing that I want and I'm writing about. I'm going to do a talk about this intangible work of leadership and I'm not talking about like performance reviews and all those obvious things that we do I'm talking about that that very Im stuff that's very hard to measure right and I just did a piece on this called chaotic beautiful chaotic snowflakes where it's like uh, you know it's hypothetical you walk into the kitchen and you talk with someone and you like figure something out and you don't even know you do it you're just like oh there's Frank and we talked about it and we figured things out there's all of this overhead of people working together that we need these leader types to to optimize to to build communication systems to to have meetings I hate meetings but they have to exist so that we can cross pollinate and get the information shared and all the stuff we've been talking about right but it's 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 so all of these intangible tasks, I think there's about four of them. I don't know them right off the top of my head. I have it written down somewhere. But where you're going to suddenly be investing more, whether it's dissemination of information, uh, making decisions, uh, uh, finding information, all these things that it's just you're not doing – you do it a little bit as an individual contributor, but as a manager – leader, you have to do it <laughs> you have to do it at scale. And sticking with a theme for this podcast, you have to choose to invest in it, right? Like my, you know, the one thing if you read my stuff that I'm just like I just harp on is one on ones every week, 30 minutes at least, no matter what. And it's like this is like that's if you had if I, my gravestone is being done right now, it's probably going to say that on it. Those three points. Why am I like harping on this really obvious thing? It's because I deeply believe that you, the lead and and their team members sitting down each week having a conversation of substance is an investment in the team. And again, it's one of those things that we get busy, we blow off. It's a bad idea, and it's, I think it leads to long term politicalness, people miscommunicating, hurt feelings, et cetera, et cetera. So understanding there's going to be all of this intangible, hard-to-measure work on top of your gig. And maybe maybe I can explain it better when I like write this piece or whatever, but knowing that that's important and choosing to invest in that was a good answer. Wow, that's <laughs> good. I like that one. <laughs>
Yeah, I, it's, it's funny that you mentioned that because it's what I tell the, those new impending managers, and it's and I agree. Like it's, it's impossible to really measure uh, measuring the effectiveness of the of the person at the front of the rowing team that that's mm-hmm. just banging the drum, going yeah. right. row, right. row, yeah. row. Right? It's like how do you like how did, did I do a good job? Well, I don't know. You were only at fifteen rows per second, so uh, I guess you know we need to really speed up your chanting. But I feel that's really what being a manager is all about. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the person at the front that's just consistently and repeatedly saying, row, row, like this is where we're going. This right. is why we're doing it. Right. This is what right. we're doing. <laughs> but I mean, this is why I have a problem with the manager leader terminology, which we can argue about at a later date. But I think that's in- incredibly important. And is that like, hey, this is a reminder. This is why we're rowing in this direction. But there's this other huge piece, which is like, which is defining the vision, right? We're rowing in this direction because over here there's a goddamn rainbow. And at the bottom of the rainbow, there's this pot of gold. And who doesn't want a pot of gold, right? You know, I mean, it's, 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 that's the piece is also that, that set, sense of why, you know, why are we doing this? Why is this important? And, you know, where are we headed? It was one of my favorite things about, about Apple was, you know, first of all, long schedules. Like I was on the OS 10 team. It was like, you knew what you were going to be doing for the next year and a half, which is really great. But you had this sense, and maybe this is the Kool-Aid talking, but it was like, we're doing this and we're headed towards a thing, right? And I understood that thing and it was an important thing. That's that's a huge part of leadership is not just we're rowing, but like when we get there, it's going to be fucking awesome, by the way. And you get there, and it is fucking awesome. You do that to someone, and it's, you get there, and it's like, there's no pot of gold here. It's just an empty thing. And leprechauns, leprechauns are jerks, right? It's, it's got to, you got to, you know, you got to, you build credibility by getting there and, and, and winning, right? Yeah. Yeah, that, that, it's interesting, too, because I, one of the, the criticisms that I often give the, the business stakeholders and companies that I work with is that they're not actually clearly articulating the developers in the in the why. They just yeah. tell them the, they tell them the what and when. Yeah. And and they don't necessarily tell the why. Right. And I you know, it's it just as much as as developers might hold back information and and obfuscate reality to the business stakeholders. It feels a lot of times that happens from the business as well. Mm-hmm. Um and it's interesting too because I always tell them like, you know, Show me a developer out there that if you came to them with the most mundane task on the planet and said, mm-hmm. listen, listen, Sally, if you do this, we're going to make a half a million dollars in the next minute. Like that will be the <laughs> fastest bit of code you've ever seen written. Right. Yeah. It's really, it's, it's, yes, totally agree. Yeah. That, that, that motivates the heck out of people. Why are we doing this? It gets hard because sometimes the steps to get to winning are like, there's like 27 and the first 10 are just boring as hell or, or like paying down debt or this sort of thing. But that actually helps again. If you can actually draw that narrative between here and there and say like, yes, by the way, this, this entire architecture is awful. We are going to spend three months just tearing this down and starting it over. We're not making a cent, but Here's the deal. After that, this is the RRI that we sing. These are the. This is how we'll measure, it, and this is why we know this is the right thing to do. That's a. a, a it's interesting that you point out ROI and and uh, other kind of businessy metrics to to talk about justifying a rewrite. I'm I'm right. I'm fairly fervently opposed, almost religiously opposed to rewrites, right. unless there's a, a clear business justification. Yeah. Do you have a few examples from from your past where there have been very clear business justifications for a rewrite? And My, and what yeah. have some of those been? I don't rewrite 
can mean a lot of things. I'd be interested in what you hear inside of that, but I'll tell you this story and then you can tell me what you hear and rewrite and why you have, why you have baggage there, which I get. I mean, I think I get. But here's the thing. Um, it, the, remember the Snow Leopard release of Mac OS X? It was like, uh, I don't know if it was the first free one. It was like 29 bucks. But it was like this feature, there was not a lot of features there, right? It was, it was, uh, it was mostly an infrastructure release. And I remember, I don't think I was at Apple anymore. I think it started and I left. I forget the whole terminology. I'm, you know, I work at a different place now. Um, but it was, I remember, I, I was there when it started. And I remember the choices of what they were fixing. It was, there were was some things in there that were landing in terms of features, but it wasn't huge. Everyone got to do this thing where they got to pay down debt. And they got to like go and like that thing that was always a P2, that it was this huge just pay down of a lot of debt. Each time Mac OS X was released, there's this pile of bugs in Radar, that the bug tracking system that was just getting higher and higher. It's all that stuff that wasn't urgent enough to fix, but it was still there and it was still a bug. They got to pay that down. And I just I installed it and I ran it. And I was like, God, it's, it's clean and it's faster. And they did all these things. And they didn't make us. They didn't make a cent of money on. I mean, I don't think they made money. They're a hardware company, so they don't make money on the software. But still, choosing to do that, I think gave them. I gave uh, Mac OS X just like a, a well-deserved house cleaning. So, how did they choose to do that? Why I wasn't. I wasn't part of that decision. But that was an example where it was like that. Doing that allowed them. I don't know, like mental cleanliness, if you will. It's like you got to like you got to like tidy up your room. Tidying up your room doesn't like make you money. But for me. Like my office right now is a little bit screwy right now. I'll clean it up because now I'm going to obsess about it. It like it, it gives you a foundation. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, looking, I actually while while you were uh, talking about the Snow Leopard release, I pulled up the Wikipedia page, and, and the big the big uh, thing here was um, they extended support for 64-bit applications across. <laughs> so I think Ooh, <laughs> I think Snow Leopard might have been the first universal binary. Right. And, I, right yeah. and they spent a bunch of time, if I remember correctly, on multi-threading. Yeah. It was yep. all... Grand Central Dispatch was the other one. Yeah. It's, it's, it was all infrastructure. It was all architecture. And, I mean, it wasn't all that. There was some other stuff, too. But it was like, that was great. And that was sort of novel, too, right? Because normally, you know, they'd get up at WWDC and say, hey, look at this. It's the new whiz-bang. And look, it's flat. Or look, it's whatever. It wasn't that at all. It was just a total engineering release, which I... That's a, it's a, I love that. And but, it was good. But you can also see some of the business justifications here too, right? Like if, yeah. if, 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 if you go to your engineers and are like, well, Intel's getting ready to release, you know, they're, right. In, right. Intel, our primary partner for all CPUs is switching to nothing but 64 bit CPUs over the next 18 months, 18 months right. from now, we cannot buy 32 bit, right. you know, right. hardware. Oh like, yeah. Like at that point you're like, uh, okay, well I guess I got to rewrite everything to be 64 bit. And then yeah. that was also yeah. around the time when we switched from multiple, I, I, yep. I know the young, the younger kids in the audience will not remember <laughs> these days, but back in my day, uh, we actually had multiple CPUs, not multiple cores. <laughs> so I'm sure, you know, when, when they, when Intel came back to, to Apple and said, Look, the only way that we're going to be able to continue keeping up with with Moore's law is is by adding cores to CPUs. That's when Grand Central becomes mm -hmm. a really important uh, a really important piece of technology to write as well. Yeah, no, it was they were definitely doing strategic things, but it was it was such a different uh, flavor of release than everything before it, where it was all about these very consumer. I mean, very these features were going to obviously benefit consumers, but they were consumer facing features, if you will. Yeah, yeah. Have, 
I, I, as far as you know, the rewrites go, and the and the uh, things that I've seen is is what seems to happen more often than not. It's pretty rare that the rewrite I found rewrites happen all the time, much right. much to my chagrin. Right. Uh, <clears throat> and they're almost never justified by the business. Yeah. And I think that's what I find so frustrating is the developers get to a point, and I always there was a great blog post that was put out a few months ago that was like. The guy that the coder that worked uh, before you, he was you know, he was terrible. Like they were always they're always terrible. Like you could have worked right. directly after Linus Torvalds in the code. Would be <laughs> terrible, right? Um, and I, I feel like most of the time the rewrites happen are because yeah, uh, developers yeah for whatever reason yep. have hit a point hit a breaking point where there's like they you know, they declare bankruptcy rather than to figure out a way right, to like right. pay down the technical debt. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the other thing I'd add to that is I think we have a natural tendency to it's not invented here is what we're talking about, right? It's more fun to build it than to figure out someone else's maths, right? And we will we will go we as engineers will go to great lengths to explain why it's a mess. But I would say it's and it's not black and white. I would say very often we're like, "No, I just want to build it so that I will understand it," right? So, um that's I, I think that's that's part of just the, our our desire to build, right? Which I get. Who wants to go in and be like unwinding this weird blah 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 syntax and what are these variables and all that sort of stuff? It's not that fun to do that. It's not. But it's again. I think I think what you're saying is the the framework around the or the model around the decision to rewrite. I think you need to really understand what is really going. Is this just an engineer who wants to build his or her new thing, or is it legit? Like, is this really a wart? Is this something that's a cancer inside of our system? Yeah, that's something that I always tell the the business stakeholders at these companies is like, what is the business justification right. for doing this rewrite? And right. and you know, I I counsel most of the people that I that I advise right. is just like just say no, like unless unless there is you know some for instance your partner is releasing right. nothing but sixty four bit CPUs in a year, unless right. there's some business justification for hitting the pause button. The answer should be by default no. I think I think I'm, I think I, I agree with that in principle. I think that there has to be there is a time and place where, and I'm thinking of the Apple Store. We were on this ancient the back end uh, e-commerce engine was on this ancient, ancient uh, web object stack, and we we had to we really really I mean we could have milked it, but it just wasn't scaling. It was just it was all it was just it was crufty. It was this big huge just big huge crufty piece of code. At some point, there needed to be some big discussion between the VPs of business and VPs of development where they said, listen, you need to give us a year to redo this. It's not going to scale. And they had to, I mean, it was a big, huge discussion. And the business value was not going to be that year. It was going to be just, we were going to be engineering and you'd get us back, you would get back to what you had right now in a year. You would have no feature increases. But it would we from there we'd be able to build the next big thing. So those are hard discussions that need to uh, just to re- repeat what you, you you have to be able to justify that really clearly. Yeah, but I feel like even in those cases, there's usually business needs driving it. So I, I recently yeah, just ran into this in a, in a almost exact same thing where a business that I work for uh, or work with, um, they have their their main point of sales system. I'm not joking. It's this is a, a you know an old company is is 
written in Turbo Pascal. It's 24-year-old software. Right. The, the people that maintain that software are literally retiring. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, but the business. So one obvious business justification is like we can't get support for this anymore, right. um, and we don't have. So, but more importantly, this is a European business, and they can't do. Uh, this old platform does not support multi-currency or multi-lingual, like multi-lingual, right? Like, wow. that's a very good business justification <laughs> yes. if you want to move into European markets. Yeah, totally, totally agree with that. No, it's yeah, but like, yeah, no, I mean, yes, we're 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 in, we're in total agreement here. There's a time and a place to actually go and do that. It's again, I just, you know, I'm. I, I think I think what I don't know if this is what your baggage is. I just have I, I often see engineers wanting to do it for the wrong reasons, right? Oh, because they're engineers. Yes. And that's great, and that's so am I. But like, it's because they like uh, they bright and shiny, right? Who doesn't I, love bright and shiny, right? I think yeah, particularly us Americans. Uh, the the thing that really was I don't want to say it's a letdown, but was a a mildly bitter pill to swallow as an engineer that moved from pretty hardcore back endy techie stuff into more kind of management product people stuff is <clears throat> uh, people don't care they don't right. they don't care at all about the code they don't care right. what it's written in they right. don't care what platform you built on top of right. Right. they do not care and that right. can be really a sad realization for an engineer that spent so much time writing sure. beautiful code <laughs> but i i think it I think it goes back to where we started, which is uh, I guarantee you there's the business side or the consumers, they do care about a lot of the implications of the platform and the technology. It's like, do you like your pages to load fast? Do you like that sense of speed? And we both know that's a huge amount of technology behind the scenes to make that load time good, right? Or a design issue or whatever it is, right? So the question is, can you... How can you map into their reality? Like, what do you really care about? Do you want it to load fast? Do you want it to be beautiful? Whatever that thing is, there still is some sort of translation between what we're doing. And maybe sometimes, maybe I'm just, maybe it's too, it's so distant that sometimes it's hard to draw those, 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 those lines. But I, that's very, what do they care? What do they care? How are we, how are we going to map into their reality? And that's, again, these, these translator types, I think, are, are essential to, especially as you get to scale of a team to kind of keeping people on the same page. Yeah, I totally agree. Well, I, I want to be uh, cognizant of your time. I know that you have a, a busy day of uh, <laughs> responding to congratulations on Twitter ahead of you. Um, before, uh, before we let you go though, I'd like to, if you could leave um, our audience, uh, particularly those engineers that are thinking about moving into to engineering right. what, or into management slash leadership, uh, what are three areas of kind of knowledge that they should be reading up on sure um i think you know i think number one is we like models right and i think you got to understand that there's all of these beautiful snowflakes out there um myers-briggs is might be hokum it's a person it's a psych it's a personality test it it's really useful i find with new leads to um understand the different personalities that are out there. The reason I think it's kind of hokum or whatever the right word is, is like you take the test like three times and you kind of get three different results. But that's not really the point. The point is to understand that there are these, um, there's these different personalities out there and you just naturally assume that everyone's like you. This is normal. So that's number one is like go and take some time to invest in like understanding the different humans that are there. Um, number two, 
uh, I don't know if these are the top three. I'm, I'm just telling you things that I'm, I'm currently passionate about. I would give you a different answer in a week, by the way. <laughs> Number two is there's this thing called status that happens between humans. I'm going to give you all human stuff, by the way. You know, have you ever been walking like around San Francisco or you're in, oh, you're up in Portland, right? Yep. You're walking on a, you're walking with someone and um, you're like walking around blocks and you come to a turn and there's this really fascinating, Rand's me loves this thing, where you're going to turn and you can go left, right or straight. And there's this super micro interaction that happens with you and the person that you're walking with that is either totally imperceptible to both parties or it's totally weird and you have this little discussion about we're going left, we're going right. And it's fast. what's happening there is a very interesting human trait around status. It's who is this person? How do you feel about them? Are they higher status than you, lower status than you? But there's this huge amount of like stuff that happens in an instant. Do you know what I'm talking about here where you're like you, you get to a corner and you kind of like stumble and like, oh, where do you want to go? There's this weird transaction going on which is around status. I think it's fascinating and, and again, it gets to these fuzzy people stuff again. People need to understand this status concept about when you're coming in as a lead, how are they viewing you? How do you go low status? How do you go high status? There's this book called Improv. Um, it's about improvisation that really um, that explains this. And I think it's a fascinating thing to, to, for people to understand. Here's the last one. This is all super fuzzy people stuff. There's this game. It's called Werewolf. Um, <laughs> And Werewolf, and I wrote an article on this that if you like have links in this podcast, I wrote this for a list apart. Werewolf is this great game. It's about status. It's about personalities. But it's about, uh, this is going to sound mean or weird. It's about learning how people lie. <laughs> and by the way, newsflash, people lie. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't mean that like everyone's lying all the time, but it's like you as a human, especially as an engineer who we traditionally genetically are not this great at this, you need to understand how people work. And Werewolf is this great game. It's like Mafia. It's just one of these social games. But we used to, I'm assuming they're still going to do, we used to play it at Palantir as part of the leadership training where you get to sit there and you got to play this game. It's a social game. And there's lying involved, but it's in a game. And but you get to really see how people position themselves and how they how they lie, and that's the reason I love poker. Is there's all this information to be gathered from the humans, and like getting good at that, practicing that is something I wasn't naturally. Maybe I was, I don't know, but it's something I've worked on and gotten better at. So it's all people stuff I'm describing. There's a lot of other things to be great leads, but those are those are three good starting points. Great advice as always, Michael. Thanks so much for joining us. We look forward to having you again sometime soon. Thank you, Jim. Are you a senior software engineer looking for a lifestyle upgrade? Help us craft outstanding web and mobile applications. Quick Left, an award-winning consultancy, is hiring skilled software engineers in beautiful Boulder, Denver, Portland, and San Francisco. Apply today and craft impactful software products with us. Visit quickleft.com careers to start your next journey.